From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Robinhood files to go public in the wake of a record-breaking fine. We're joined by two fantastic founders as their companies get fresh funding. That's Coda and Daylight. And Bucking.com announced the creation of a fintech unit. All this and much, much more on today's show. Before we start, we want to tell you about something 11FS is cooking up and a quick word from our sponsors. So uh, we'll be right back. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost-income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. We've got some exciting news for you. Blockchain Insider, our bi-weekly podcast dedicated to all things crypto, is coming back. Join me, Simon Taylor, and my new co-host, Visa's head of crypto, Kai Sheffield, when the first episode drops on Wednesday, the 14th of July. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts and don't miss it. Welcome to episode 544 of Fintech Insider. My name is Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my colleague and making a co-hosting debut is Guerra Kawani. How are you doing, Guerra? Hi, uh, doing okay. I'm being humbled by the Nairobi winter. We're in the middle of our winter right now. Oh, <laughs> and how humbling it can be. Uh, surviving it, staying warm though, you, you gotta get everything you need. Got my turtleneck, it's okay, doing okay. <laughs> That, that's it. It's, it's the tech way. Um, bring the turtleneck when it gets a little cold. And you can look pensive. You've got all of that now. That's amazing. And we're not alone. Yeah, we're joined by some amazing guests. Uh, making a FinTech Insider debut, we have Billy Simmons, who's COO and co-founder at Daylight. Thank you so much for joining us. Big fan of what you guys are doing. Um, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And making a welcome return, we have Peter Lord, who's CEO of Kodak, who's also had a big week um, following the funding round. Thank you so much for joining us, Peter. Thank you, Simon. Thank you so, so much. We've got just so much to get into. So we're going to kick off with a story that made, my goodness, quite a lot of headlines this week, both good and bad. Um, This is about Robinhood filing to go public. A day after incurring a record-breaking fine from Wall Street's industry regulator, it filed its paperwork for its IPO. The company hopes to raise up to $100 million by going public, but it was also ordered to pay around $70 million for systemic supervisory failures, that's the sentence, and hurting investors by giving them false or misleading information. That's the largest penalty ever imposed by Wall Street's self-regulating body, FINRA, but it's also a huge, huge IPO with a lot of customers and a very successful business. The company said it planned to make 20 to 35% of its shares available to retail investors through the IPO access function on its app. The IPO has been a long time coming and happens to follow on the back of a massive fine and various other controversies, but there are apparently still some lawsuits. So not out of the woods yet. Uh, Guerra, what were your first thoughts when you saw this announcement? First thoughts really were, um, you know, Robin Hood is the naughty kid in class who's been reprimanded by the teacher and has turned around and started doing backflips in the back of the room. <laughs> so Robin is really the only company that, that can like, in the same breath, announce an IPO, but then also promote a feature, which is the IPO access feature, which is what they're going to let, what is it, 20 to 35% of their uh, 
of their shares going to be available in the app. So that's it's pretty cool. It just goes to show their how brazen they are and how how uh, how confident they are about the future. How about you, Peter? Yeah, I wasn't surprised at all. Um, I think Robin has a great business, uh, and the timing clearly works well for them uh, off the back of recent growth. Yeah, delaying further would you know, risk uh, that that market cooling off. Um, although personally, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Indeed, indeed. Billy, what were your thoughts? I guess I'm a bit contrarian here. I, like I, I think Robin Hood has done quite a poor job of of building community and kind of engaging with the kind of uh, you know casual day trader community. It's you know it's very clear with all of the rumblings on Reddit that um, that cohort are really not happy about this and are kind of rooting against them. I would personally think it would be a much smarter move to try and you know bring those people in because those are the people that are gonna gonna want to support them and see them succeed. But you know, uh, they are certainly brazen, as Guerra said. Indeed. And they've had some fantastic numbers. I think they've gotten more than 18 million customers. They're driving a lot of profitability. But um, those to that point, Billy, um, the 75% of their revenue came from that controversial practice known as payment for order flow or PFOF or PFOF. Like I, I want to say PFOF because it's fun to say. So it, it, essentially, the brokerage sells its customer trade data to market makers such as Citadel Securities, who in return promise to execute the trade at better than current market prices. So in other words, uh, it looks a little bit like front running the trades and selling this data to, to Citadel, but it's also a very common practice from a lot of retail brokerages. It's not just Robinhood that does it, and it's, and it's not as controversial as it may seem given that you know, it happens elsewhere. Peter, how do you think about that branding of sort of zero fees, commission-free versus actually there's this other thing happening in the background? Do you think that's what's angered the Redditors and, and some of the other communities? But do you also think there's, there's like a tension there? Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Robinhood user um, and it's commission-free, but I know they make money. They, they're making money from somewhere. And, and as you pointed out, I think uh, maybe... They've been you know, unfair to be put on in in the spotlight uh, as they have been when actually this is fairly common practice uh, across the industry. Um, no matter what you believe about the intentions, uh, I think that they've enabled many to invest that wouldn't have done so otherwise. And these people have learned a lot about investing, about finance, stocks, even options trading. Uh, and I think uh, I think that's hugely valuable. Uh, to society, it's uh, and it's this education element that I think Robin Hood needs to uh, double down on going forwards. Uh, given that their customer base includes uh, retail investors with maybe more limited experience, and you know, really growing that sense of community that that Billy's talked about. Guerra, how do you think about the financial inclusion side of it? Because it's always so hard to financially include, especially when you're dealing with people that could lose their money. But has that been a net force for good financial inclusion from from a Robinhood standpoint? Or is the cost more and outweigh the benefit? I think if you look at what they've done over the past few years, like they've definitely, I wouldn't say it's been a net good, but it's been a net good if you just look at purely like education and and awareness and just also like pure inclusion. So people are able to in, be involved in stock trading and young people are getting involved and, uh, you know, rushing, you know, <laughs> rushing it in a way that, that is really exciting, but, but also has, you know, it's it, the, uh, the, the, the downsides are, are really, really down. You know, there's been a death, there's been a young man who died, uh, directly related to decisions that Robinhood has made with their, uh, user experience. 
So yeah, I'd say on one one hand, okay, sure, if we look at financial inclusion in a in a vacuum, yeah, it's been great for financial inclusion, but um, I don't think Robinhood's been a net good for society. Interesting. It's always that tension between sort of um, getting the UX right versus um, kind of allowing people to use these new types of uh, trading mechanisms. Of course, we should say that Robinhood, um, not only um, like a free trade in the UK or like many other brokerages, allows you to buy stocks, but it also allows you to borrow to buy or sell stocks in the future or options trading. And that's what happened with with the young gentleman in question who unfortunately took his own life after seeing in his user experience that he looked like he was more than seven hundred thousand dollars in debt unfortunately you know the, the worst happened to, to credit robin hood they did come out and then change their ux and, and do a lot lot more but i think there's a lot more there as you look forward from this billy there's there's a lot of other competitors emerging now there's public.com there's uh, common stock there's a few others do you think that social side um there are examples of people doing things differently that we can learn from definitely i mean i'm a i'm a public user myself um and I have bought stocks and you know found found things that I definitely wouldn't have without the community features that public has. I also think that it does a lot to get ahead of some of these kind of you know bad outcomes. You know, often you know user safety is put on the back burner um, and it's only done as kind of a, a remedial change. And I think that you know focusing on the community and focusing on education as as a as a wedge and as like your as your first focus is a great way to ensure that you're protecting your users and you're giving them the information that they need to make uh, good decisions. Yeah, it's that balance between functional utility, you can do that thing easily, and social utility, and it won't hurt you. Um, and, and that's a, always, a, always a, a tension to try and hit because sometimes that bit of friction might be bad for the functional utility, might be bad for your business, but it's good for your users over the over the longer time horizon, which is a responsibility that's that's super important. Guerrero, I'm going to come back to you on the crypto side as well. Of course, famously, Robinhood added crypto and so its memberships really, really increase. How do you think about companies like Robinhood adding crypto and the responsibilities that come with that? Yeah, I think, I think yeah, in one sense, Robinhood adding crypto is, is quite quite remarkable, quite brilliant. Um, it's democratizing cryptocurrencies and, and crypto in general has just been, you know, for so long, uh, kind of like the internet's early days, the people who are involved in crypto are people who are in the nitty gritty, in the weeds, really understanding the, the the very technical specifics about it. But now it's mainstream, uh, and and Robinhood has really helped push that. But alongside it, I think they're doing an okay job also uh, with the education piece and teaching people about about cryptocurrencies. And so yeah, I think I think in that sense, I'm quite happy to see crypto go mainstream via Robinhood. It's interesting. There was a good article by Ron Shevlin and Forbes that described Robinhood as like a, a cockroach. And I think that was you know, typical Ron. It had a bit of snark to it. But what he meant by that is um, this thing will keep moving forward and is, is incredibly successful in a runaway freight train. And there was a really good tweet storm by Frank Rockman um, on Twitter. If, if those of you are listening aren't following, then do check out Frank Rockman. He's a phenomenal uh, mind in, in fintech. Sort of saying that uh, he had a conversation with uh, what he assumes was an everyday Robinhood user who thought, "Oh no, wait, this is this is great. I can get access to the stocks. I can borrow. I'm I'm making money." Um, and it reminded me of the old saying, "Everybody's a everybody's a genius in a bull market when stocks are going up." everybody's succeeding and and that could turn the other way if the market turns. So we, we've just got to be careful with this stuff. But Peter, do you think they're being sort of treated more harshly than other players because they are that poster child because they have broken some barriers in some ways and, and being made an example of? Yes, I mean, they've been incredibly successful and success makes you 
makes you stand out. Uh, and I think the publicity around kind of GameStop and and kind of Reddit and Wall Street's bets has uh, has created a bit of a, a frenzy that has helped power some of that criticism. I think it's yeah, it's probably worth recapping in case you do live under a rock somewhere. Yes, the GameStop Wall Street bets saga that happened about three or four months ago when the GameStop price rapidly shot up around a subreddit called Wall Street Bets. Robinhood had. Uh, they couldn't fulfill its trades anymore because it had a very high margin call. One of its suppliers asked it for around about $3.6 billion in order to continue um, playing. And it was actually Mark Rubenstein on Twitter who found out that um, the companies that stepped in to help uh, Robinhood through that, I think one of them was Ribbit Capital, have made a tidy profit on having covered them for that as well. So uh, all these interesting things happening behind the scenes with all things Robinhood. I'm just uh, going to point out as well, there's some good um, show notes here from producer Laura that says cryptocurrency trades accounted for 17% of revenue um, through 2020. Um, and apparently it must, a good chunk of that was thank you to our good friend Dogecoin. Billy, as I, I think about the optics of being associated with crypto with Dogecoin, um, being associated with options trading, like other ways to do that sort of thing responsibly and what, what might there be? Because there are other people starting to look at crypto in different ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, kind of to, to your point that you made earlier, while everything is is going up and everything's in the green, uh, everyone's happy. And I, I, I worry that, by giving completely, you know, uncontrolled access to all of these financial products, it's kind of like when you're a, you know, a student and your bank says, "Oh, here's fifteen hundred pounds in a in an interest-free overdraft," and then suddenly it has interest three years later. Um, you, you you're not really being educated on on the on the kind of risks um, properly, and it's you know, everyone's saying, "Oh, put all of your money in all of these," you know various different uh you know cryptocurrencies without really understanding any of the underlying technology beneath it what it's actually you know what market forces uh are it it is affected by um and I think it's. I think it really just comes down to education and and the way that you're actually building your product. Um, you know, making sure that when you are actually going to purchase on the app, it actually you know flags and makes sure that you are educated and and kind of uh, make sure that, you, that you're aware of the risks and you're not putting your life savings in Dogecoin and or Dogecoin and uh, <laughs> and hoping that you know that that it continues to go up because you know we'll end up with more situations like the one with the uh, the unfortunate situation with the man. Uh, or the teenager um, a couple of, of months ago. Indeed, indeed. All right. Well, I'm going to move us on um, and um, to to some better news um, than than the unfortunate teenager and, and everything that happened there. Um, Daylight is raising millions to build a digital banking platform designed for and by the LGBTQ plus community. Daylight says its mission is to build a more equitable financial life for LGBTQ folks and their chosen families. Uh, company services are targeted towards the people, lives, and families and allies, or as Daylight describes it, values based consumers who. Who want to support the queer community. The startup plans to use its new capital mostly to expand its flagship products and lifestyle services, which are designed to improve the financial equality and inclusion for the estimated 30 million plus Americans who identify as LGBTQ+. 
Daylight is uniquely positioned to help the population deal with challenges such as higher debt accumulation, such as factors uh, due to pre-existing conditions, lower insurance levels, HIV management needs, and gender transition costs, and much, much more. LGTB people are about 20% less likely to have a savings account, 20% less likely to own investments in stocks, and are a quarter less likely to own a mutual fund. Billy, let's come to you first on this. Firstly, congratulations on the funding. Um, and I remember speaking to you maybe six months ago and just some of the stats and stories, you know, I have the good privilege of, of just being blind to those and they, and they blew my mind and broke my heart in equal measure. Um, please tell me the story of, of kind of how Daylight came about and, and what inspired you to, to begin the, the Well, uh, the you know, uh, we had kind of a funny, a funny beginning because I was originally approached by my co-founder, Rob, um, just to do some user testing. Um, I've obviously worked in fintech for most of my career and I was building um, an app for sort of a Yelp for safe spaces for the trans and non-binary community at the time. Um, so it wasn't totally out of the blue, but really Rob wanted to hear about my lived experiences as a trans woman that's lived in America for, uh, I think at the time, about five years. And for me, it was a really, a really big light bulb moment of just realizing that my own experience has been, frankly, terrible accessing financial services and going through a gender transition, um, both from the side of just kind of the infrastructure and the, the way that the banking system works in the US, uh, but also, you know, the costs associated and the time that is associated with all of it. Um, and that was really the beginning. And a couple of months later, I, I hopped on board and kind of started this journey. And it's been uh, yeah, it's just coming up to a year now, actually, since since we kind of started. So it's been been quite a, a whirlwind um, up until this point. Building fintech is is always a whirlwind for sure. Um, <laughs> and I think the um, the surge of newly formed community banks with demographics underserved and overcharged. I mean, you, you're coming up with it with a vintage year. There's First Boulevard. There's Greenwood Bank. There's Cheese. There's Fair. Um, why do you think we're seeing such an uptick in these services now? What is it that's making this possible? I think it's a couple of things. I think it's it's really a perfect storm of, you know, all of the social changes and upheaval that we've seen over the past, you know, year or two. We're, you know, good friends with the First Boulevard founders and they were directly inspired by uh, to start uh, First Boulevard by the murder of George Floyd. And, you know, I think in the LGBT community as well that, you know, black trans women are killed every couple of days at the moment in the US. Um, it is an epidemic. And, I think there's that and there's all of these kind of, you know, huge social changes. And then it's also easier than ever to start a community neobank because, you know, the fintech uh, stack or the BAS stack is is more accessible than ever. You know, we've spoken to the Simple Founders before and hearing their story and how long it took them to kind of get up and running. And for us, it was about six months from kind of first conception to having cards in hands with our beta testers. And you know, it's just easier and cheaper than ever to kind of do. And I think what that does is really empowers marginalized communities to take their own destinies in their own hands and say enough is enough. You know, I want to I want to build something that's for my community and I'm not going to wait around for incumbents to recognize us. And marginalized but massive communities. 30 million is an enormous community of people who are so unbelievably underserved. And again, just some of the stats, the uh, same-sex couples face a 73% higher chance of being denied when they apply for a mortgage. I mean, it's, it's just... Uh, a lot of this is just so baked into the system that it does take somebody to to build something new. I think to 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 take that out. Uh, Guerra, what are your thoughts when you when you saw this funding announcement and and everything Daylight? This is brilliant. I mean, we've been following uh, Daylight's story for a while, and and it's really really exciting to to uh, congratulations, uh, Billy. But yeah, no, I I I'm always you know when I do hear about 
community targeted banks um, like Greenwood and and, and Daylight. I, I wonder, um, you know, it's it's all good and well to you know create a bank and enable you know simple things like checking and savings and mortgages and all that. But um, you know, what are the the really like small details? Like, how are you really affecting uh, the communities and supporting them? Like like you mentioned. Uh, there's black trans women in in America are dying at an alarming rate, and you know they think the life expectancies uh, for black trans women is 35. So, what is Daylight doing right now to to really support the community? So, I think for us, it's really about the power of community. You know, when we think about these, you know, big statistics like 73% more likely to be denied a mortgage, that's a really difficult and expensive problem to solve. But what we can start with is providing a best-in-class banking experience that centers LGBT people, right? So out of the gate, we allowed trans and non-binary people to have whatever name they wanted on their card. Trans people in particular are at significantly higher uh, rates of violence when, you know, they have mismatched identity documents. Um, And so allowing them to get whatever name they need on their card to, you know, provide for their safety. And then I think as we're moving forward, we're launching our rewards platform. And the exciting thing about this is uh, you get rewards for shopping at the at LGBT-owned and allied businesses, but that reward cash not only goes back to the user, but it also goes directly into the hands of low-income LGBT people in need through mutual aid funds. Um, so really at the heart of everything we do is how do we get more money into the hands of queer people who need it? So every event we do is a fundraiser for a local mutual aid charity and, you know, not supporting these large bloated charities that aren't really actually doing anything, but organizations that actually put 90% of their funds directly in the hands of the people they're trying to help, because that's how you help people help themselves is give them more money. And so, you know, I think as we go down our product roadmap, it's really thinking about what are the different ways that we can make it easier for not just our own community, but also allies. And, you know, once you think about, okay, I have two parents and I have a bunch of friends who also want to support me, the total market size there is huge. Um, Just by doing your normal spending, you can be directly uh, supporting LGBT people who need it. Billy, one thing that really stood out to me from Simon's uh, introduction to your business is that LGBT people are about 20% less likely to have some pretty basic financial services like a savings account. Why is that? That doesn't make sense to me. It's because we are less likely to have a savings habit. So this, you know, it's a very kind of long lifetime sort of insidious situation. So we're uh, more likely to be rejected by our families, which means we're more likely to have student debt, which means uh, we are less likely to uh, have a savings habit. We are paid less, we're promoted less. So we're less likely to have, you know, extra income to put in savings accounts, less likely to be approved for a mortgage. Uh, when you get to Having a child, the average cost for an LGBT couple is $55,000 and gender transitions can cost up to $100,000. So really on the, you know, the back foot financially, and then these additional costs just to kind of be on the same playing field as non-LGBT people. So that's really why it's just, it's harder for us to, to catch up. Those real everyday costs just of, of not being included from the system and, and uh, the social costs really start to add up in dollars, unfortunately. And that's, uh, that, that does put people behind. Um, but it, turning it to optimism, it seems like you've got, you're still in beta. Um, you've got a lot of customers on the wait list. So uh, what comes next for Daylight? Where are you guys headed? So next for us is launching our rewards platform, as well as switching over. At the moment, we're a prepaid card. So switching over to a traditional bank account. Um, 
so that we can kind of offer more traditional financial services there. And then coming out of beta at the start of October, and that's when we open our doors, we're fully in the app store, and we can start um, acquiring customers at scale. Oh, and I forgot to ask as well, um, one of your taglines is built by and for the LGTB community. How is it, how important is it to you that the people building the product are actually part of the community? I think it's really important. Um, you know, this is often a question that we have to ask ourselves internally. You know, it's hard enough to hire software engineers at the moment, let alone also finding software engineers that identify as LGBT and want to work at a seed stage company. But I think, you know, by and large, the founding team is all LGBT identifying. We do now have one team member who is not LGBT, but he has a non-binary child and is, you know, a strong supporter and ally of the community. And I think that the reason that that is important is because we are able to center our own experiences to create our own solutions to our problems. And we've seen time and time again, you know, MasterCard and TrueName is a great example, a, a good attempt at helping the trans and non-binary community. I actually use that product for one credit card that I could never update uh, with my current legal name. And I still get letters sent to my house um, in my address to my dead name, which is the name I used before I transitioned. Um, so, you know, there's, there's just this, by not having lived experience in, in the, in the kind of product strategy, you're skipping all of these kind of nuances and cultural understandings, and you're just creating, um, a product that isn't as good. Yeah, the privilege of, of not having lived that experience, um, and not being, not knowing that you need to solve these problems, it would, would blind you to, um, needing to solve those problems, uh, unfortunately, I suspect. And, uh, when we last spoke as well, um, just thinking about how a big bank would be able to change that process. So, for example, being able to allow somebody to, uh, live their true name and, and not get caught up by the fraud system and not get caught out by, by anything else is actually very, very challenging at big banks. Whereas if you're building a new one, it's, it can be a little bit easier. Yeah, exactly. You know, we can we can say, okay, we're going to rebuild the KYC process from scratch. What does it need to look like in order to center trans and non-binary people? Um, and I think that's really the key. You know, all these incumbents have all these massive systems that are built on, you know, uh, built on software that no one really codes in anymore. And so making these huge systemic changes um, takes a lot of time. Yeah, it, it really does allow to change the fabric itself of financial services for the benefit of people when you when you get to start from scratch. Guerra, any closing thoughts before we move to the next story on this? Uh, just closing thoughts are really just what Billy said earlier about the perfect storm that's been created and, and how uh, using BAS, like, you know, various providers, like I'd say like Marketa, maybe Alloy, uh, who can let you use the building blocks to build the perfect financial solution for your customers. So can't wait to see what y'all do next. Yeah, and that's the thing. We have seen um, a lot of fintechs start to really expand their product offerings. I suspect this is just the beginning for Daylight, and we'll hear a lot, lot more from you guys. Uh, all right, we're going to take a quick pause here while you hear from our sponsors. We will be back shortly. Customers expect more from their digital experience, and their personal finance is no exception. BlueShift empowers fintechs and financial institutions to create secure customer profiles and intentional, relevant experiences for customers. Whether in-app, on-site, in-branch, or anywhere else, BlueShift's Smart Hub CDP helps brands like LendingTree and ClearScore turn data into personalized experiences that increase retention, satisfaction, and revenue. Learn more about BlueShift at blueshift.com forward slash 11FS. 
Hey folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. Alrighty, thank you very much to our sponsors. The next story is about Coda, um, apparently raising $40 million from Tiger Global for its SMB-focused API service. So led by Tiger Global, um, closed a $40 million round uh, has Coda, and its annual recurring revenue in, in the past year has grown 3x uh, from the end of 2019 to the end of 2020. That's pretty good traction. Such growth would imply a 9x gain in revenue at the end of 2021 compared to the result from two years ago. Uh, from around 50 employees at the time of its Series A, the startup is now quickly approaching a 150-employee mark. Um, Lord said the company is hoping to end the year with around 250 staff. Pete, great to have you with us. Congratulations on the round. Can you tell us more, well, for people who don't know what Kodak does as well, it might be just worth the elevator pitch, um, and then how you 3 x your revenue? Yeah, so... In terms of Kodak, uh, we have built a platform for business data and we enable our clients who are mainly large financial services and technology firms to connect their products to all the other applications that are used by their small business customers. So more specifically, we're talking about applications like accounting systems, Xero, QuickBooks, Sage and others, uh, e-commerce platforms like Shopify, uh, points of sale tech like Square and payment services like PayPal. Um, so uh, connecting the SMB ecosystem. And TechCrunch used the term Plaid for SMBs. What do you make of that term? It's obviously very flattering. Uh, Plaid's a great company and and a partner of ours. Um, actually, if you're a client of Kodak, you can use Plaid via our API to access bank data uh, on small business customers. And then we can combine that with the uh, integrations and the connectivity that, that we've built natively in-house. So, you know, we, we work very well with, with Plaid. At the same time, I think that the problem that we're solving at Kodak is actually harder. Um, small businesses in comparison to consumers are all very different. Their data footprint is much larger and more complex, uh, and the data in the systems that they use is stored and represented um, very differently. And so that makes the work of standardizing data into a single format um, work that, that Kodak does for our clients. Um, very tricky, but ultimately more valuable. There's companies at the moment like Pipe.com, like Uncapped, like Clearbank, who sort of um, are doing different underwriting um, for the SMB sector and the growth business sector as a result of connecting all of these up. And really, it's sort of um, bringing that to anybody who wants to build on, on that sort of tool and data set, I suppose is a fair saying. So um, if a small business wanted to apply for a loan, how would, how would this differ from an experience standpoint to the traditional underwriting process with a bank that, that might be available? Yeah, some, some Kodak customers uh, in that list of examples. So the existing process before connectivity uh, typically revolves around manually uh, sending documents, often via email. There's a lot of document tennis chasing back and forth to uh, to get a PDF that's then sent sometimes uh, to another country uh, for data to be entered manually. And this process can take days or weeks. Um, what the type of connectivity that Kodak enables 
is a small business to share um, their the access to their data with a nominated third party, uh, typically via an OAuth mechanism, so very safe and secure. And then ultimately, a, a, a decision can be made instantly. So we're cutting out days or sometimes even weeks in, the, in that time to cash, which is vital uh, for a small business uh, who often have, you know, they run things uh, pretty close to the wire. And so that, 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 that can be make a huge difference to them. More data equals better decisions. And I think what's interesting in the past couple of years is it's become kind of normal for newer lenders to use open banking data to to try and underwrite consumers on the retail side of the market. We've seen these new market entrants now do that for, for SMBs. But does it also help from the lender's perspective? Could an incumbent lender use this? Could they transform their processes with it? Yes, definitely. So some of our largest clients are more traditional financial services who want to be able to offer the same product experience as, as fintechs. And you know, what we're offering in you know, fintechs is to be able to get set up very quickly, much like Lily was just telling us uh, about how she was able to set up her company much faster than you would have been able to a few years ago. It's exactly the same. That's what Kodat is offering our client base. Whereas before, you might have to go out and build all these integrations uh, one by one in-house our clients can get started with Kodak much faster and have a full breadth uh, of coverage from day one. It's interesting, Guerra, you mentioned, and I think Billy, you did as well, the fintech stack or the banking as a service stack. There's sort of almost tools that builders and operators are using to in different markets uh, to, to build new experiences. Guerra, as you look at the SMB landscape, we often say that um, small business owners don't want to be accountants. How does this sort of change the small business experience day to day if there's the if this API is available from the lender? It's really just helping them focus on doing what it is what it is they love to do rather than like running their business. Um, so you know, players like Kodat uh, are definitely really helping in like in that sense by by adding to the stack. But I'm curious, uh, Pete. You know, you you all have uh, grown revenue three x in the last few years. What's one of the learnings that you've learned from your customers, from like end users, that, that's been really important to you? Yeah, so Kodak's been around for uh, you know just over four years now. And really, there's been a huge uh, shift during that time in terms of the level of expectations of SMBs. So now small businesses expect that the products and the services that they use uh, work nicely together that they can take a sale on their point of sales transaction and that data will automatically be accounted for correctly in their bookkeeping. Uh, And that's a shift that has followed um, what we now expect in our consumer lives. And that drives the demand for our our product uh, and ultimately better experiences for small businesses. Fantastic stuff. Um, I think the uh, global expansion side as well is a story often not told. I mean, from the accent, I'm guessing you guys are UK based and uh, have a UK origin, but you've got a presence now hiring in San Francisco, New York, London. Is there a bigger opportunity for you guys in the US? And what do you think about Europe? Because I recall a couple of years ago when Monzo and a few of the folks from the UK were looking at opening in the US, there was a bit of a us and them thing. And will they ever come over here and, and all that sort of stuff? And, and, the, and the cultural fit. Have you have you found that transition? And, and how do you think about the difference in the markets? Yeah, and from a from a personal perspective, I moved from London to New York at the end of last year, and you know, our US team is is now growing uh, growing very fast. We we have 
customers in in Europe today, outside of the UK. And we also support some of the packages that are used in Europe as well. For us, when we th- you know, our mission is to create a global platform, uh, and so when we think about kind of other geographies, for us, you know, we're really focused on our uh, international clients who want Kodak to be able to provide them a connectivity solution uh, on a global stage. So, Pete, as you look to the future, what's next for Kodak? So I've talked about expanding our coverage in terms of the systems that we connect to, both the type of systems. Uh, so Kodak started out specializing in connectivity to accounting software. And uh, I mentioned e-commerce, point-of-sale payments, and through partnerships, people like Plaid, banking, on obviously on the global stage. Um, but we've now started to build uh, products on top of that core infrastructure um, for the first time uh, to help uh, our clients be able to really interpret data um, and put it to better use for their small business customers. So we recently released a product called Insights, which is us providing a layer of intelligence uh, on top of that data uh, for the first time. Um, And and that's a a direction of travel for for the product for the first time doing more than just providing the pipes. I think that sort of value add above the pipes is a classic play that we see Stripe and Twilio and many others do as as you've got the basic data movement in place, you can start to really reduce the R&D effort and you can start to really create a lot more value for your users as an API-based business. So looking forward to all of that for sure. All right, I'm going to move us to the next story. And this is about Bucking.com, the famous travel website, creating a fintech unit. Um, Its internal fintech business unit is going to facilitate seamless access to the company's global travel marketplace for both customers and partners. Booking.com able to further remove financial friction from travel processes, making buying and selling travel-related products and services easier for everybody. The fintech unit will function as an independent business unit within the company and improve the economics of the marketplace for everybody involved and create potential new revenue streams for Booking.com. To find out more about this, we spoke to Daniel Moravitz, who's Senior Vice President of Fintech at Booking.com. Let's hear from him now. At Booking.com, we are really excited to announce the creation of our new fintech business unit. And as I think everybody is aware, you know, Booking.com has been dedicated for more than two decades to helping people experience the world. And of course, we're a two-sided marketplace. So we're also dedicated to helping suppliers of, of travel and hospitality product to find a market for their product and sell and distribute. And what's clear to us, having spent all these these years and decades removing friction, removing complexity, removing anxiety from from the problems that both sides of the marketplace face, one of the last bastions that we haven't attacked uh, as aggressively uh, is financial product uh, and financial services. And so that's what this new unit is focused on. We are dedicated to solving the problems which are specific and in some cases very complex that travelers face as they move cross-border, cross-currency, and buy a product which often has a big gap between when you make your commitment and when you actually consume the product. And the same for our suppliers on the supply side of the marketplace. They also have lots of complexities about how they get paid and when they get paid and getting confidence that the policies that they want to enact can really come to life and be realized. So the fintech unit is all about continuing uh, the tradition that booking has had for for such a long time of removing friction from both sides of the marketplace, helping people experience the world in an easier way, 
and in the process, building uh, a number of new, powerful, and very interesting streams of revenue for the company. Thank you so much for that, Daniel. We look forward to seeing how this evolves over time, and we hope to get Daniel back on the show in the future to tell us more. Guerra, do you think we're going to see non-financial businesses creating fintech businesses or business units more and more? It's happening. It's happening. It's already happening. I mean, I think maybe not creating whole business, uh, financial service units on their on their own, but like, you know, having lots of bass players enabling businesses to connect and and mix and match what, whatever their needs are to embed finance into into various products. Yeah. I think Booking.com has the luxury of being, you know, a large company um, that can afford to really uh, just go hard uh, with that. But yeah, I, I see this, especially with their international brand, I, I see this being really, really cool. Yeah, international brand and travel, of course, is such an area that um, right now probably um, we, we all want to be getting back involved in a little bit. Um, Billy, famously, a good friend, Angela Strange at A16Z says every company will become a fintech company. It, is this that happening or is this like old fashioned, hey, we're just doing, we're taking a bit more of our financial services stuff in house? Is this just good marketing, maybe? I think it could kind of go either way, right? Like this is like, it, it may well be something innovative and exciting, you know, as someone that at least pre-pandemic uh, lived pretty much evenly between the UK and the US, you know, international travel and managing money in that way can be really messy. I think there are probably opportunities around travel um, where like embedded finance would work really well and currently doesn't. It could also just be, you know, jumping on a trend uh, and kind of seeing if, if it gets any kind of hype. So I think we'll We'll have to see how they actually execute it. Yeah, the international travel and cross-border, cross-currency transactions are always really difficult. Guerra, you want us to jump in there? Yes, absolutely. So I, I see the international, that piece uh, with cross-border transactions being what probably what I think is the most interesting uh, because, you know, internationally, like sending money is incredibly difficult. And, you know, I, I'd be damned if like, if I may, if you're able to send someone in Kenya $100 today, they wouldn't be able to send it back to you immediately. Uh, it's it, you know that's that's just how how fragmented the systems are. So I you know I see them making it really easy, so both on you know the c- customer side, but also on on the host side and the businesses that are using uh, Booking.com, allowing people to get paid easier, um, allowing customers to use whatever method of payment that they want to use. Um, so you know for example in Kenya, I'm in Kenya right now. We use M-Pesa, which is a mobile money wallet that everyone uses for everything. I'd be, I'd be really cool if I could pay for a hotel in Thailand using my M-Pesa wallet. So this is this is what I think that Booking.com could actually do uh, if they really double down uh, and do this really well. There's a good mix of alternative payment acceptance types that they could focus on more and more. Um, there's a good mix of you know being able to make life easier for their partners moving money across border and dealing with their suppliers like the hotels, like the airlines and all of that sort of stuff. So maybe cross-border and, and moving money internationally is one place. Another thing that struck me was, was the possibility of buy now, pay later for travel. When 11FS has done customer research into the buy now, pay later sector, you know, yes, fast-moving consumer goods, clothing, comes up as like the number one use case but the number two is usually travel and and you don't really see that embedded at the point of sale in, in really quite the same way so there's there's potentially opportunities there what are your thoughts pete do you is every company going to become a fintech company what are your thoughts on on booking.com's move here yeah it makes makes total sense to me embedded financial services within vertical applications is is huge and i think there's the reason for that is because if you operate the 
tech stack for a particular vertical, you can really understand those customers. And I think for booking.com, that's both consumers, but also the suppliers uh, in, the, in their network. Um, so I, I think everyone's going to going to benefit from this move. Um, also, it's there's a movement of money. Uh, whenever there's a movement of money, there's a movement of data. Uh, and that's where Kodat often gets involved with some of these companies, uh, helping to reconcile systems. So for example, uh, being able to reconcile the payments against invoices for hotel bookings over time with those particular hotels uh, as just one example. And that creates uh, huge time savings for businesses uh, and also for consumers uh, on the other side. It's um, really quite ambitious as well in terms of um, their plans to expand the unit to more than 400 fintech experts by the end of 2021. Um, Billy, I'm interested in the stat that um, A16Z put out that uh, verticalized SaaS businesses can 2x to 5x revenues. And uh, when I looked last looked at the Shopify annual report, around 55% of their revenues came from financial services. Does this mean that like banks who do transaction management and cash management are going to lose out or are they still there in the background do you think Hmm, good question you know i think that we're definitely seeing a rise of alternative financial products in general um you know especially outside of the us in in other um, markets where people are not necessarily banking with traditional banks but also in the us right like the rise of crypto and things like that you need you know uh non-standard ways of accepting that money i do think that incumbent banks are not going anywhere ultimately. And I think that their role in in the kind of uh, financial ecosystem is just gonna change. You know, you, we're building uh, alternative financial products on top of a sponsor bank rails uh, still. So, you know, while people might not be banking with, you know, large incumbent banks anymore, uh, we're still having to use uh, their systems. Yeah, they're more of a platform than uh, than an experience as such, and they're less of a destination and, and more of a, of a provider. But Pete, I mean, you're quite familiar with being an infrastructure provider. That's quite a different um, skill set to have as a business than being sort of a pure um, sort of uh, direct to customer, direct to business play. You know, what are the what are the key points about when you are B two B and infrastructure providing that you think are different, um, and do you think banks can can gain those skills? Yeah, and I think what'd be interesting in regards to booking.com is if they if, if that business unit helps just companies within the booking group or actually uh, in the wider market and potentially even competitors uh, of some of their businesses because that's what being a true platform looks like. Um, we'll have to see uh, kind of what the strategy is is there over time. Yeah, that's going to be interesting to watch and I, I wonder to Billy's point, are there banks behind the scenes enabling this? You would imagine there are, but are there other infrastructure providers behind the scenes? I think about a currency cloud, for instance, who are sort of the the, the fintech stack player who you would choose for cross-border payments if you were looking to add them to uh, add that to your fintech application versus the banks who've you know kind of gone deep into the infrastructure themselves. There's a classic example of like being fully vertically integrated as a, as a financial services business. Uh, they used to give the example of the Ford Model T where Ford used to own the rubber plants and the steel plants and their entire upstream supply chain, which interestingly, Tesla is going back to doing. But actually in financial services, it feels like we're unbundling a lot more. We're going the other way. 
whereas it's becoming a bit more horizontal. And Billy, to your point earlier, that's allowed you to get to market faster and cheaper than ever before. Do we reach a point where we need the rebundling, the super platforms start to emerge? Um, do you think that will happen? I think we're maybe already seeing it with, uh, you know, companies like Stripe. I think that as some of these, you know, sort of unbundled players uh, start to grow in size, they will probably naturally start to acquire a lot of, you know, competitors or, you know, things that can be additive to their existing products. I wonder if we might see kind of a very similar kind of situation in two decades where we end up with just different incumbents who are kind of these, you know, behemoths of financial services that were originally designed to uh, work against the existing behemoths, but um, now have just kind of become become the same with scale. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. <laughs> Indeed. There you go. All right. We're going to move to some stories we didn't have time to cover, but still deserve a shout out. So Guerra, do you want to kick us off? Yeah. So Fair Money uh, raises $42 million. Fair Money, a Nigerian app-based bank that uses alternative smartphone data to underwrite microcredit, has raised $42 million in a Series B funding round led by none other than Tiger Global Management. Uh, they launched in 2017, and Fair Money began life by applying machine learning techniques to smartphone data uh, to assess creditworthiness. Uh, in 2020, the firm lent $93 million to over 1.3 million users, who made more than 6.5 million loan applications. They've also expanded into India. They've also secured a microfinance banking license, uh, which has enabled them to launch a current account. So with the new funding in place, Fair Money plans to add new products, including savings, stock trading, and crypto. I think this is an interesting trend uh, of, of the lender to neo bank pipeline that's going on in Africa. So folks like Fair Money and Carbon. Yeah, and there's been a lot of raises recently by neobanks in the region as well. So um, definitely good opportunity if you're building uh, on the continent right now. Already, Plio has raised more than $150 million for managing expenses for SMBs. The raise sets a record for being the largest Series C for a Danish startup. We won't mention um, the euros. And values Plio at more than $1.7 billion dollars. Congratulations to those guys. There are around 17,000 small and medium businesses now using Plio, and they have set an ambitious target of reaching a million users by 2025. Plio has around 330 employees today spread across London, Stockholm, Berlin, and Madrid, as well as Copenhagen. Um, and it will be using some of the investment to grow that team and its reach. Expenses management is estimated to be an $80 billion market in Europe. And I'm not surprised. Um, when you look at um, the companies in the US, like Ramp and everything that's happening with Brex, everything that's been happening with Coconut and Tide, like that whole SMB space is just so ripe for disruption. And Plio was one of the, the earliest in Europe to move. Um, so congratulations to those guys. And let's hope we see a lot, lot more from them in the future. Uh, Guerra, over to you. Barclays stops UK clients from sending funds to Binance. Uh, so Barclays has stopped UK customers from transferring funds to Binance after the FCA last month said that the digital asset exchange was not authorized to undertake crypto business within UK borders. Uh, the bank notified clients and said that the ban would start immediately and was intended to help to keep their money safe. But it also said it does not impact on the ability for customers to withdraw funds from Binance. Barclays' decision comes as the UK lenders are grappling with the extent to which they should let clients move funds to and from crypto exchanges over concerns about a lack of regulatory oversight over the sector and widely varying compliance standards among ex exchanges. 
This is not surprising. Binance have been the bad boys for a little bit, been in trouble with some regulators in Canada and Thailand as well. Uh, so it's interesting to see this crackdown happening uh, so quickly. When you said bad boys, the theme tune to the movies and the song started playing in my head. So thank you for that, um, first of all. And second of all, yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's uh, let's see what comes of that in the near future. Uh, over on our sister podcast, Blockchain Insider, I'm sure we'll explore that more, which is available on iTunes coming soon. So make sure you subscribe. All right, let's bring everybody back in for the and finally story of this week. And this is, well, apparently some Chase customers became instant billionaires. Yep, believe it or not, the number of lucky Chase Bank customers became the 25th richest people on earth after Chase deposited $50 billion into their checking account. One customer said, I was a billionaire for four days. It was a cool feeling, even though you couldn't do anything with it, one of the recipients said. He claims to know at least 150 other people who have been the beneficiaries of mystery deposits. A Florida woman revealed how she found nearly a billion dollars in her Chase account. When she went to withdraw $20 from an ATM and then struggled to get a hold of anybody to help her return the cash. Chase says the issue has now been resolved. Oh my God, banks are so broken. Like if you ever see under the hood, you know that somebody fat fingered this or something like that. Billy, what are your thoughts? I really like the idea that this is like a communist intern that has snuck into one of the uh, control rooms and started redistributing wealth across America. Uh, personally, that's my, that's some sort of my uh, headcanon, so to speak, of what's happening. But I think we all know it's because the infrastructure at most of these banks completely suck. Yeah, indeed. And it, it's really worrying, isn't it, that this can happen? Like People go on about like DeFi and crypto being quote unquote, not regulated and not secure. And then this happens. Pete, what are your thoughts on this? Four days is a long time for that mis mistake of that level to be rectified. Uh, coming from an, uh, an engineering background, that scares me. Uh, I'm a Chase customer. Unfortunately, I haven't uh, had a uh, billion dollars in, in my account, but I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, after this, I'm going to go and check. I was going to say, what would you have bought if you ended up with a billion dollars by accident? Would you try and spend it as quickly as possible or would you try and give it back? That feels like a litmus test for humanity, doesn't it? Yeah, I think there's no way you're going to get away with that. Uh, if I could get away with it, I would, uh, I'd lend it um, or invest it in small businesses. So uh, Kodak's mission is to make life easier for SMBs uh, and they've had it pretty tough over the past couple of years, but primed for, for a bounce back. Small businesses make up 99% of all businesses and 50% of the world's economy. So they're, they're vital. So I'd like to think that I was both getting a, a good return and, and, and making a difference by putting it to SMBs. So you didn't go for the swimming pool of money. Okay, cool. Guerra, how about you? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I learned about this on TikTok, actually. So I saw, I saw a TikToker um, show their, their, their bank balance and all the comments were like, this is a scam. This is a test. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, I mean, definitely testament to the fact that like traditional banking is so messed up. And I bet that, you know, it probably took them a very long time and cost a lot of money to, to fix that problem uh, or the error that happened. But yeah, would love to have $50 billion just deposited into my account. Yeah, we'd love that. And credit to the folks that did have to fix this. I'm sure that wasn't fun being an employee of the bank dealing with all of that. So we, we poke fun, but we know this stuff is hard and you deal with big, big money and uh, those systems are hard to deal with. Um, already, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. What a show this was. Uh, where can people find out more about you, starting with Billy? Our website is joindaylight.com and we're launching publicly in on October 1st. So come and come and make an account with us looking forward to that pete how about you 
kodat.io. And if you're uh, interested in our services, fill out the form and um, one of our team will be in touch for a friendly chat. And Guerra, how about you? Uh, 11fs.com. I'm also on twitter.com uh, as not Guerra. Not Guerra, check it out. All right. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at SYTaylor or email me Simon at 11fs.com. And as for you, well, thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please remember to subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. I know you're thinking, I'll just fast forward this end bit so the podcast is gone. I'm going to I'm gonna wait here till you've done a review. Like, I'm looking at my watch. Have you done the review yet? It really, really helps us genuinely. Thank you. Um, and as always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to our guests and goodbye for now.